from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 19, recorded May 31st, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Julia, how's the strategy going? You know what? It's being strategized. It's it, there, there's there's lots of strategization happening. How uh, are you, Jason? I'm I'm doing I'm doing okay. Uh, it's good. I just director of strategy is such a great title. I just got to say it. I love it. Don't try it's to outflank fun. Julia. <laughs> Don't try. It won't. I'm going to make some business cards and just make it super efficient. I don't know if people give out business cards anymore, but no, oh, that's a good one. It's too bad. Virtual business yeah. cards, something like Virtual that. Virtual business cards. Yeah. All right. We should do uh, uh, some follow up. We got a lot of letters on this. I'm going to I'm going to read a lot of letters. We got complaints from letter writers that we promised to read their letters and then we didn't read their letters. Not all letters are read, but I did promise somebody I'd read their letter and then we didn't. Uh, which makes makes made them sad, made me sad. So we'll we'll get to that. But let's uh, give this uh, a, a start with some follow up. We talked a lot about Netflix and theatrical, and uh, you were tweeting about this, and I saw the trailer, and I I was laughing because I realized the whole story behind this, which is it's the Gray Man, it's the Russo brothers who did all those Captain America and Avengers movies that were huge. It's a big budget action thing that netflix thinks is uh has a lot of franchise potential um you see the trailer and it looks like it's going to be a blockbuster movie that's in theaters except it's coming to netflix it is going to do a theatrical run but it's like a week in a limited run and then it just is going to show up on netflix and we talked about netflix and and its relationship with movie theaters and if it might do more theatrical in the future the gray man is a really interesting example of something that is essentially a summer blockbuster but it's only going to get this limited theatrical release and i i think it's a good example of sort of like is that the right strategy for netflix going forward because it sure feels like it should be in theaters for a month or two before it shows up on netflix yeah this is a movie that if it was released in a year a year and a half it would probably get a longer theatrical release depending on how netflix wants to navigate those waters i think what it, it just has the um the consequence of bad timing in the sense that it's too soon for Netflix to really go out with yeah. this and figure out also what those financial terms would look like with that with uh um the Russo brothers and with its cast and figuring out all the all the back end deals and that's a lot of work to renegotiate right before it's due to come out. But I, I totally agree. I mean, this is a movie it's funny because the trailer opens up and it's like from the directors of Captain America, Civil War and Avengers Endgame. And it's like, oh yeah, these huge theatrical movies that were kind of like the definition of what works in a theatrical setting over the last decade. And it's like, but you can only watch this movie on Netflix unless you're in one of these specific cities that has access to this movie for a very limited time. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's also, it's not that competitive of a market theatrically right now. There is like a solid movie every two to three weeks, but there's enough room for people to go out and see the big one they want to watch. So you've got Top Gun Maverick, you've got Thor coming up. Like there's some options happening, but it's not huge. And in the streaming uh, marketplace over the next few months, it is competitive in ways that like you could not even imagine like network tv was never this competitive theatricality was never this competitive it is like multi 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 hundred hundred million dollar projects premiering within a week of each other um and so it's for netflix it's this moment of like not only do they have this huge movie coming out which is really exciting and they're spending a lot of money on it and to jason's point there's a lot of franchise potential but it's also going to be there squashed in between like new stranger things like the next part of the season four it's going to come out and umbrella academy and then also like like a new Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And so it's just this moment of like, it, it's going to get extra lost there. And it actually might have found a moment to breathe theatrically, but we'll never know. We'll never know. But that definitely if you're, if you're uh, uh, watching this and saying, wait a second, I thought Netflix changed strategies. This is, it, you know, it takes more time than that to do that. So this is uh, to Julia's point, uh, probably not what they would do if they had to do it all over, but it's too late now. And so the gray man is instead, what if Netflix paid for a blockbuster summer blockbuster movie and then just, you know, didn't show it in theaters and took it straight to Netflix. And that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. trailer looked great. Trailer looked, looked really cool. So, so good. Uh, another little note that I wanted to, uh, double back on, which is, um, new daredevil series now <laughs> yeah. reported for uh for disney plus 
I, I find this fascinating because this is, you know, and you're like, well, wait a second. Wasn't there already a new Daredevil series? And there was. And then they this so Daredevil was a Netflix and then Netflix and Marvel kind of severed their relationship. And those all timed off and went on Disney Plus. The uh, I want to say the other shoe dropped, but this is like the third or fourth shoe in this story. Now, there's many shoes on the on the pavement now. But the, the next step is you get the shows from Netflix and then you make either a new show or more seasons of the old show, however you want to spin it. And so now that's the story is that Disney plus is gearing up to do their own daredevil original, uh, after getting all of the, all the rights back and all of the shows back from Netflix, which is uh, yeah. interesting progression of this story. Like give Charlie Cox more to do, I guess. <laughs> it's also my favorite, like maybe second to Spider-Man, although maybe in front of Spider-Man, my favorite, like, storytelling of ip rights in the superhero blockbuster age like it's just really fun being like this show started on netflix and then disney took like a 150 million dollar loss on licensing revenue to bring daredevil back and then charlie cox's daredevil and i think i'm gonna say spoiler alert really quick for spider-man no way home but i think it's been long enough but but i'll just say it you know so there, there, there's your spoiler alert. Fast forward 10 mm-hmm. seconds. But he appears in Spider-Man No Way Home and, uh, and that and that's a Sony movie. And now they're going to make and which will not appear on Disney Plus because Sony owns the rights to it. And now they're going to do a new Charlie Cox Daredevil that will be completely under Marvel Studios, not within a Marvel Studios Netflix relationship. Uh, and it's kind of one of those like beautiful moments of the rights to um daredevil are kind of the perfect summary for why everything in the blockbuster billion dollar theatrical space when it comes to superheroes are so complicated because when a bunch of marvel properties were sold off after marvel declared bankruptcy and they were kind of figuring out how to make money uh and a bunch of them were sold off daredevil went to marvel but it was like marvel entertainment and then marvel entertainment partnered with netflix but netflix retained some of those rights and so it's it's just a fun moment of like these things that happened 25 years ago are now coming to pass very publicly today and it's like it's my favorite thing it's just a fun rabbit hole to go down don't forget the uh ben affleck daredevil that happened too there was a I would never ben, forget that like Daredevil movie. <laughs> yeah, it's also um, the one other a- angle that you didn't mention that I think it's interesting is Marvel also used to have a TV division and a, and a, and a studios division. Yes. And what we think of as Marvel is Kevin Feige and all the Disney Plus um, shows are from the, the Kevin Feige's group, which is now doing TV, but they didn't originally. And so something like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC was handled by this other TV group that was more kind of under the control of Marvel's uh, CEO, um, Ike Perlmutter, uh, who is notoriously a cost cutter. And he had a different creative group for that. And you got the sense that the Marvel Studios people kind of didn't appreciate the the other people playing in what they viewed as their uh, their sandbox. And so the old Daredevil series was from that old group and the new Daredevil series is from the new group. And on one level, I think it's actually interesting that they didn't view it all as uh, as as, you know, sort of in a petty lens of like, well, that's poison because it was not us who made it. And instead are like, no, actually, we liked Daredevil. Uh, we're going to use Charlie Cox. We're going to use uh, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and we're going to bring back Daredevil on Disney+. Plus. It's like, I think that's an interesting endorsement. Um, I'd like to see Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, honestly, too, because those were also there was a lot of good in the Netflix series. And it's interesting to see how Kevin Feige's group is sort of like, what are they gleaning from that stuff now that now that it's no longer a uh, over on Netflix thing? Now they own it. It's on Disney Plus. It's essentially part of them. How do they proceed? And here's the first oh, yeah. hint. Exactly. And 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 so the other creative group at this point with Marvel TV was run by Jeff Loeb, who is an incredible comic book writer. Like he's someone who has worked on Marvel Comics. He understands what makes um, I think if he's given the budget, I think he's given the room to develop. I mean, we can get into the whole, you know, here's what happens when reality gets in the way of what you're trying to accomplish. But he developed he's the person who oversaw and developed the Netflix Marvel Universe, which was really strong. Um, Jeff, they have like the Marvel Studios, once they started taking over TV stuff and once they were really Kevin Feige was kind of given that control, has like all but erased Jeff Loeb yep. from this equation. Like all the all the Jeff Loeb projects on Hulu 
basically came to an end. The last one was Modoc. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, like all of the Netflix stuff for the most part was ignored other than Daredevil. And I'm with you. Like, I think I would really love a Jessica Jones. And, you know, a year ago, I would have said, like, does Jessica Jones make sense on Disney Plus? Because there's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of, like, all these adult themes. And then they put Jessica Jones on Disney Plus. Yeah. And so I'm in this moment of, like, I would love to see Kristen Ritter come back and and redo that role. I, I could do without Iron Fist. I'm sorry to all the Danny Rand all, fans. All, all but, of us, all of us could. But yeah, and Mike but, Coulter but, is, yeah. as 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 um, Luke Cage too. Those yes. that was some great casting. I have issues with um, various parts of all of those shows. I I, I actually think Daredevil was probably the strongest in the end, but Jessica Jones was really good too. And um, Luke Cage, while it never. I think it never had a solid, I think they did two seasons of that. And I don't think either of them were particularly solid, although there were certainly episode runs in them that were really good. First half of the first season of Luke Cage, I think is excellent. Um, and then yeah. they lose their, they lose their bag, their big villain and, um, it kind of spins out of control. But, um, there's a lot of good raw material there. And, I, you know, rather than it being just discarded as being irrelevant because it's not connected to Kevin Feige's, uh, uh, empire. Here we're seeing with this Daredevil thing, maybe not. Maybe they they don't feel like that stuff is uh, poison. And you might be saying, well, of course, it's, that's silly. It's it's Marvel. It's all part of the same family. But I'll tell you, I've heard stories of things where a uh, a fiefdom inside of a big conglomerate um, greenlit a franchise at some point, and mm-hmm. t- decades later the people in the other fiefdom wouldn't will never give a dollar to it even though it's laying there as intellectual property because it's from the wrong part of the company and they therefore it's poison to them which is so weird because it's like shouldn't you be turning through all the couch cushions looking for intellectual property at this point and yet people are people can be really petty and the politics can be poisonous so that was a lot of peas i said there so anyway (laughs) kevin feige and his team saying no we like daredevil and we like charlie cox i think that's uh, they didn't have to be that way and they are and i think that's good i think it's a good Mm -hmm. thing i agree um you did a newsletter from parrot Mm -hmm. analytics that people can sign up for and we mentioned it before uh that i wanted to at least touch on here because uh, you talked about the sort of like the the big ways that you see strategy in the in the current phase of the streaming era, and I know we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I like how you boiled it down to kind of like the three different ways of looking at the strategy. This is like the cheat sheet for all of downstream <laughs> for all nineteen <laughs> episodes, which is it's uh, scale play ecosystem driver. And cross pollination; those are sort of like the three three lenses to use to look at the strategy. Do you want to kind of like give the the thumbnail view of what those three are? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because what we're seeing happening right now can be summed up by consolidation and rapid um, growth, or the attempt to have rapid growth. And so what that means is that there ends up being what I deemed as the great rebundling era, um, which is a play on Ben Thompson, who writes strategy. He wrote the great unbundling moment to the great unbundling era. And I kind of was like the great bundling era, um, to which I gave him credit for. I don't want people to think I plagiarized Ben. (laughs) I I, I noted that. Um, But I think we're in this moment where these companies are realizing that at the uh, multiples that they've promised the street in order to reach those, in order to keep their stock up during a really, really uh, bad market and all these things happening in order to keep their investment flowing, in order to keep things growing, they have to really deliver upon the sizable audience that they're saying, you know, like Peacock comes out and says we have 13 million. And that's actually pretty strong growth for them over the course of the last two, three quarters. But the street compares that to Disney at, you know, 137, which is totally unfair, but it's what happens. And so my view was what we'll see happen a lot is what we are seeing happen and it will continue. So there's the scale play, which is the straight M&A of, you know, discovery merging with Warner uh, Warner Media, um, Disney buying Hulu, Paramount using Showtime to bring it into Paramount Plus. This is that's just the idea of like there's, you know, 10 to 30 million subscribers lying around somewhere. In this case, for Discovery, 74 million subscribers lying around somewhere. If you add those on top of my subscribers, then we're automatically going to surpass 100 million or 150 million subscribers. And so it's that kind of great place of like we've already got a pretty strong leg up. And we just have to figure out how to make the platform usable and engaging and, and, um, really lean into what our audience is interested in. It's not, you know, easier said than done. And it's not, and it's extremely costly, but that's kind of the main one we see. 
The ecosystem driver is the one I'm sure a lot of um, Jason listeners will kind of be aware of. Yeah, it's the Apple, Apple, Apple ecosystem, Amazon ecosystem, um, which makes a lot of sense. I had a fun infographic in there, which just kind of showed like, you know, the minute. And, and again, like Jason knows this better than most than anyone. A lot of his listeners do, too. It's just that moment of like you're already using iMessage and you're on your MacBook or your iPad for Apple Apple Fitness Plus, And then you start listening to Apple Music because it's there. And then you get Apple One. And so you start watching Apple TV Plus and you're reading Apple yeah. News and all of a sudden. And, it could, and then for Apple, the big thing, of course, and I know a lot of you know this, it's like, well, once you're in that ecosystem, which we refer to as Hotel California, um, <laughs> it's on the next product upgrade cycle. It, when you want a new phone, you're not going to go get an Android. You're going to get a new iPhone. Yeah, uh, I, I which, think Apple would amend it to say something like you can check out anytime you like, but you'll never <laughs> want to leave. But uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, that's it's it's pretty good. And that and that's I, I'm fascinated by the ecosystem driver thing, too, because it it makes all of the uh, logical, reasonable economic arguments kind of fall apart because it's sort of like if you can say well why are you spending so much money on that on that lord of the rings show amazon or why are you spending all this money on all these tv shows apple you can't possibly be making it back they can i think legitimately point at their larger ecosystem and say yeah but (laughs) right like we're not doing it for that we're doing it for and then wave their hands at the rest of their ecosystem and it's makes it hard to compare it to some of their competitors right because they're not playing the same game Right. I mean, this is, these are two companies that don't ever release their um, individual subscriber numbers for yeah. their services. Like, and, and I think where as Amazon's makes a lot more sense because it's one unified platform and it's this idea of like one unified kind of, I mean, you can upgrade to it, but it's one account. Like you have your Amazon Prime account and you get this. Apple's is a little bit more complicated because it's not even like you only get Apple TV plus on Apple devices. Like a lot of how they're working within it is still questionable from a strategy perspective, but you can see what they're trying to do. And then the last one um, is this kind of cross-pollinate. And the best way to figure, think of cross-pollinating is, um, you know, when you use your credit card and you get a lot of like flight points and then you get to use those flight points to go on flights. This was because the credit card companies and the airplane companies realized that a lot of people were buying tickets with their credit cards. And so if they could work together to kind of figure out a, a, a strategic third-party partnership, it would encourage more people to spend money on their credit cards, which would then um, um, encourage more people to take flights. So it's kind of worked out for both parties. And we kind of see this happening already. Um, a great example that I think is is prominent is Apple TV Plus and PlayStation kind of leaning into working with each other to give um, people different free subscriptions for like three months. Like it was a trial period, but it was this idea of like, we're on the platform. We know that there's a strong overlap. And we see that in our data. There's a, another infographic in there. There's a really strong overlap between people who use PlayStation consoles or who play PlayStation games and you work and have Apple devices or, or and are interested in Apple TV Plus shows but may not be subscribed. And so it's that kind of way where it's like it's not necessarily a direct thing. It's not like you're saying we're going to bundle Hulu with Disney Plus, which is the same type of service. But it's a way of saying like, hey, we know that there's probably another 50 to 100 million people here who may be interested in this. And if we offer them a way to get involved or a way for them to pay or a way for them to have this for free, it might encourage them to pay more down the line. Um, an example I always like to think of is like if you're have you have a really strong Netflix new, uh, recommendation newsletter or streaming recommendation newsletter like the New York Times is watching, there's probably a really big group of people who are interested in subscribing to different streaming services. And if you were to knock off the Netflix subscription for like a dollar or two and you get the New York Times bundled with it or whatever it might be, that would may, that would that may encourage more people to kind of go out and say like, oh, if I have the New York Times and they're going to give me Netflix for half off for six months, like I'll sign up for Netflix again because I'm getting it for eight dollars or whatever. Um, and so there's we're going to see, I think, a lot more of those as they start to realize that the amount that consumers are spending on subscription services, not just entertainment, is increasingly growing. But we are at a moment of insane inflation. We are coming into a bear market. We are going to see layoffs and a recession happen. Um, and there's going to be a moment where they start cutting down. So if you can combine two different or three different or four different services that do different things, but that really kind of t- touch upon one particular consumer need or a household need, you may see that your subscriber losses are not as strong as competitors who don't have that built-in cross-pollination um, partnership. So that's just what this this newsletter is. It's kind of a, a deep dive. It's a monthly newsletter that does a deep dive into like one specific topic. This month's was all about, yeah, like bundling and why we're seeing a lot more and what we should expect to see more of. Love it. Love it. Yeah, people should definitely sign up. ParrotAnalytics.com. Just go sign up for it. Put a link in the show notes to that uh, that post as well because it's uh, it's really good. Um, okay, I want to do a little bit about uh, this is also kind of follow up, but it's kind of different, which is 
um, some things you wrote about um, it's that battle between Netflix and Disney, and we mentioned like the the uh, Stranger Things came back and Obi Wan premiered, and Disney Plus moved the Obi Wan premiere to be later, um, which tied into Star Wars Celebration, but it also was later and closer to Stranger Things. I did notice that they um, they they made it premiere at nine p.m on uh 19 pacific on a thursday night instead of midnight which i thought was a, an interesting kind of like they, they seem yes. to they dropped it a little or a few hours early which i thought was like yeah you should totally do that that's a that's a fun little little tweak so we get we have these two things we have uh stranger things coming back uh and what that means for netflix since it is really netflix's number one piece of intellectual property you wrote a whole piece on puck news about uh, can Stranger Things save Netflix from its new self? Sort of like the push and pull there. Um, and I, you know, I, I just, I, again, we've talked about this a lot, but now that it's back and it's split in two and it's got this, these movies that are the second part of the series, but they're essentially movie length, but for contractual reasons, they have to call them episodes because they have to pay the actors and that's kind of, kind of wacky. Um, but Stranger Things returning, you know, does, does that, change our perspectives a little bit or should it change our perspectives a little bit given the last couple of months of really rough uh news about netflix is is stranger things a moment to say well wait a second maybe we've we've overdone it with the negativity about netflix or is it more like a reminder of what netflix uh you know strengths and weaknesses are yeah so i mean i think that's the question like that's the right question and it's this question that a lot of people have had which is Netflix's biggest show that they spent $300 million on this season, like, is returning. What does this mean for Netflix? And I always like to think of it as, or I have been thinking about it as, um, Netflix is in the middle of this identity crisis. It's in this, and, and, and Stranger Things is kind of this beautiful through line that encompasses everything that Netflix is, everything that Netflix promised it could be. Um, and what people want Netflix to be as Netflix kind of pushes forward. And so it arrives at this moment where the quality assurance on the content is not very high. People are kind of like, what is Netflix? You know, when was the last time it produced my favorite show? When was the last time it had my favorite show? You know, I can't really think of five of three or four shows that are on Netflix that I'm really excited to watch or that I, I really want to return to. And then Stranger Things, which arrives at the same time that Netflix uh, expands into 100 in 2016 it expands into 100 different countries it is the it's the first show that goes kind of viral for Netflix outside of the US it's in Canada it goes absolutely viral and then it goes viral globally it's the first show that Netflix can see as as strong franchise potential as potential flywheel effect where they can do merchandise and all the fun stuff it's this moment of like oh Netflix can come in and compete with like the Disney's of the world with this type of show and Every passing year, Stranger Things was a stick out thing that was like Netflix is landing this ability to do the high power fantasy. And at the same time in 2016, 2017, 2018, Netflix was really hitting it home with a lot of the dramas that were coming out and a lot of the comedies. And Netflix was kind of saying like, we are tastemakers, we are cultural hit makers. And so Stranger Things was always at the front of that pack. It was kind of this core identity to what Netflix was. And as Stranger Things went away for three years, in those same three years, Netflix's identity has kind of come into question. Its film division hasn't made anything super um, substantial on a franchise basis. A lot of great dramas, many that have been nominated for Oscars, but nothing on the, on a, a franchise or, or big, big action basis that's memorable. Um, the television division is getting caught up with ordering a bunch of shows that last for a season and they get canceled. Some shows that run for two or three seasons that no one is necessarily talking about. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense like the ranch ran for like six seasons um there's all this questioning about well what is netflix at this moment why do i subscribe to netflix and, and it comes at the same time that stranger things is gone for for three years right like there's not this one thing that's like oh yeah like that was the, the show that i signed up for netflix for um a study before season three of netflix uh, of stranger things came out showed that 13 percent of u.s subscribers returned to netflix for stranger things like it's that show and when we come back and we come and now we're here, we're at this this past weekend. I didn't see much talk about Kenobi. It was actually all talk about Stranger Things. TikTok is all Stranger Things mm. right now. The big the big meme right now is like a Stranger Things meme. And it's this moment of people going like, oh, yeah, I opened Netflix. Like I spent my weekend watching a Netflix show. Like I binged this Netflix show. And then I went out and talked to other people who binged this Netflix show. When was the last time that happened? It was Stranger. I mean, it was Squid Game. And before Squid Game, it was like, I can't remember, mate, 
maybe The Witcher or like maybe Umbrella Academy. Um, but it was or 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 uh Queen's Gambit, but like Stranger Things returned and with it this like full blown enthusiasm for like what that Netflix experience came back and, and people rushing to like do spoiler etiquette stuff. And it was just this kind of nostalgic moment for 2016, 2017, 2018. And so I think the question you know, that uh, Matt Bellany, who's, who's a great writer at Puck and he, um, often edits my pieces, that he kept saying was like, you know, what does this mean for Netflix's growth, though? And not no one show is going to, like, save Netflix. No one show is going to drive 10 million subscribers, 15 million subscribers to Netflix. Stranger Things, I think, added, like, maybe close to a million. And that, that was amazing. But it wasn't, like, it wasn't a, a, a huge or I, that, that might be a gross miscalculation on my part. I'm sorry. I think it might have been a couple hundred thousand. But uh, it wasn't like it did a huge amount of traffic, but what it did was kind of like, oh, this Netflix moment. And so I think what the Stranger Things arrival signifies for Netflix is that that ability is still there. The ability for Netflix to still be this cultural hit maker, to still be a tastemaker is still there, but it's getting lost in the sea of mediocrity and averageness yeah. that people just are like, I don't need this in a moment when there are other streaming services that I can go sign up for. So Stranger Things and Netflix are the same story in so many ways. They are intertwined. I think it was just this moment of like, I want Netflix to continue this. And I note in the piece that we're in the middle of a mid-development cycle. So it's going to take another, you know, 12 months before we see if Netflix can do it. But it was a strong reminder this weekend. And I think Umbrella Academy will be too in a couple of weeks that this, that Netflix can do this. And it's just going to take a minute to get back to where Netflix originally was. And they have to figure it out because if not, the competition will eat them alive. Right, right. And you can't, it, it can't all be uh, volume. You, you got to have your no. hits. You got to have your, your big moments. And it's still a hits business, right? It it's is. Funny like a, it's an a entertainment lot of business. <laughs> a lot of companies in this space don't want to act like it is. I, I have this debate with a lot of people in, in, the, in the industry and they're like, oh, you know, like the algorithm or this or whatever. And I'm like, first of all, the algorithm only shows them stuff for their service. So that doesn't necessarily work. But also... No, it's a hit business. People want to watch the thing all their friends are talking about or the thing that really connects with them. It's why when it's why everything everywhere all at once, this small indie movie from A24 made like 60 million dollars like yeah. at the box office. Like it's an insane like cuz people kept talking about it and they were connecting to it and it was a movie they wanted to watch. And television is that times 10 in the streaming space. So you have to have your hits. I think the way the, the way that premium cable and basic cable allowed for content to develop and to be um, um, uh, allowed for it to be supported in terms of revenue makes the most sense. If we think about what HBO and Showtime and FX do, it's like two to three strong shows a quarter. And every quarter, there's like one really strong show. Um, so you have like a Euphoria, a Succession, or whatever it might be. There's like one strong show. And then they have like two shows they might be trying out or one's returning and they want to see how it's doing. But every quarter, there's like two to three. And then they go and that you go through and you're like, there's a hype cycle. There's a conversation cycle. There's time to watch it. There's time to like figure it out. It's supported by people who are coming in and, and paying for that one returning or that one big show they really want to watch. And then they get to figure it out. With Netflix, if you've got, you know, 80 shows or, or, or 50 shows premiering in a quarter, the vast majority of those are going to be are not going to be great. They're going to be forgotten. And then that's what people associate it with. Not your one hit that might stand yeah. out. It was the 49 shows that they were like, ah, I don't really care about this. Yeah. Cat catalog content will keep them happy, but yeah. they got to they got to open the app. They got to stay subscribed. They got to care about it. And that's the hits. Those are the hits. You got to you got to have them. Speaking of which. So obviously Star Wars and Marvel um, their catalogs come from a different place, but they are still trying to create events uh, with their individual uh, show releases. So uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi came out. They dropped two episodes on Thursday night and um, Star Wars celebrations going on at the same time. Their big event that they had in Anaheim. And um, you made a comment that I thought was really a good way to have this perspective about star wars which is they did a lucasfilm studios panel at star wars celebration about where star wars was going and effectively all of it was streaming television on disney plus right it's all like a, a film franchise with some tv adjuncts has at least so far transformed into 
a streaming TV franchise. Pretty, pretty dramatic where you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi and then you've got Andor coming later and there's other stuff in the works. And it's and although they say there are movies being developed, like their whole slate of content is Disney Plus shows. Yes. And it's very funny to me because I've said on the show and I've said it on Twitter, like I think the most important installment in Star Wars history is the animated Clone War series in terms of what that did for the longevity of the brand. Um, but it is very funny. On the, like, on the one hand, you have a film franchise that the executives were slightly worried about. And I can, and we know that because Bob Iger commented on it in 2000 and like, 17 2018 after when was that 2018 when when solo came out um and basically it was like we might be putting these out a little bit too fast you know we're really proud of the star wars brand we we have out the utmost faith in it but on the film side we really need to figure it out and i think it was a really prescient comment because what he basically was saying was we need to understand what theatricality looks like. And we, as the Disney company, understand what theatricality is because we have Avengers Infinity War coming out next year and like Frozen 2. Like like they are hyper aware of what works theatrically. And for Solo to not have worked, the question was, okay, what does this mean for our film franchise? Now, on the one hand, the executives got it wrong where they were, you know, Kathleen Kennedy had a comment um, this past weekend or, or whenever Star Wars Celebration was two weekends ago this past weekend, whenever uh, that was like, you know, Solo didn't work because we can't recast older characters um, and try to do that. Like it doesn't work for the legacy. And like they said it right before Kenobi came out. And I was like, I don't understand the, the logic here. Yeah, but, I, I, I think I totally disagree with that, too. Like, yeah, oh yeah, we a, don't want Do- Donald Glover as as uh, as Lando. Um, right. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't make any sense. And it was like, no, you guys put it out at a really weird time. It came out like five months after um, uh, Return. Uh, oh, my God. Return, I was gonna say Return of the Jedi. The, the last, last Jedi. Jedi. And like, it was just, you know, it was a messy time. Like it's everything about it. Like the marketing was not great. Everything about it was like set it up to not do as well as they had hoped. But there was this moment, I think, especially after Rise of Skywalker. And you saw that Rise of Skywalker made less money than The Last Jedi. And so there was this moment of like, we need to figure out what our film franchise is away from the Skywalker legacy. Um, we got to figure out, you know, what kind of works. How do we do a Rogue One type thing again that's really successful? And so they took a few years, right? They brought on Taika Waititi. They brought on Kevin Feige. They brought on Michael Waldron. Like they brought in all these people to kind of like figure out the film franchise and the film universe. And as someone who used to work at Polygon and said, spent a lot of time watching my reporter pals cover like crunch in the games industry, like it, I'm always in favor of delaying. I'm always in favor of like figure it out, make it good. Like don't just rush it out because you're trying to meet your fiscal, you know, year goals. But what that means is that the television universe has become the growth uh, um, sector for Star Wars. And I mean that in two ways. I mean that one, in terms of revenue, but I mean that two, in terms of actually growing the universe outside of like Skywalkers to an extent, out, figuring out what works and what doesn't, figuring out new characters that people might relate to, figuring out what old characters people don't care about. And they've managed to do this because they can film it at one-tenth of the cost. They can use a lot of like Unity technology uh, to, to bring stuff in and like film these huge shows and put them out, you know, once a quarter. And they can rely on it because it keeps people subscribed to Disney Plus. So it's, it helps that one side of the business as they figure out theatrical. But it is funny. So like it strategically, I think it actually makes the most sense for them. But it's just funny because this was the film. Fr- when we yeah. talk about film franchises, like we are referring to what Star Wars created. Like we were referring to like Star Wars did this thing. And then every other studio in the 70s and 80s and 90s followed suit. And they were like, yes, like we are going to do this like from – from like the horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street to Jaws to like Rocky. Like everyone was like, we are going to franchise this. And, and But Star Wars is where it started. And now it's like there's a whole studios panel at Star, Star Wars Celebration. And the movies like aren't mentioned basically. Uh, yeah. They're kind of like they're coming, but it's all streaming. So it's all about this service they launched two years ago. It's a wild, wild concept. Well, as a kid who grew up loving Star Trek before Star Wars was even out, I, I you know, I saw it because Star Trek was a TV show. Star Wars mm-hmm. was movies. And then Star Trek, they're like, uh, we could make a movie franchise, too. <laughs> and they did. But the truth is that what really kind of worked the best, I think, for Star Trek was that they also went back to TV. And, it, yes. and, and, and that was always the difference to me between Star Wars and Star Trek is Star Trek was a TV franchise that had some movies and Star Wars was a movie franchise that had some, you know, some TV shows, some animated, mostly TV shows, right? But um, 
what are they now? And it's streaming TV franchises, apparently. It's fascinating that you could go from those two different directions and end up in the same place for now. But obviously, both franchises want to make movies, too. They want to do theatrical. They want to figure it out. We'll see how they do. They're trying to figure it out. But it's just, yeah, I, I, I laughed when you made that comment on Twitter about it because it's so true. Like Star Wars, at least for the moment, where all the action is happening is on is on Disney Plus. And it makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And it makes sense for them to figure out what they want to do theatrically and not not force it, which I think they were doing after the after Disney bought Lucasfilm. They they kind of forced it all into into theatrical when that might not have been the best best move. Can um, I can I yep. mention my one concern really quick? Yes, please. Because I know we have some le- I know we have a bunch of letters. I my concern one is and, and I preface this by saying as people, as listeners of our show know, I love, love, love Marvel, love the MCU. I am so worried they're just going to MCU Star Wars. And I'm worried that they're going to keep trying to use Taika Waititi to recreate what Thor Ragnarok did for for the, for the Thor franchise and for Marvel. And I'm so worried that it's going to burn them out uh, and that they're not going to be able to recapture it. And they're going to try to like, because all the talent they're bringing into Star Wars outside of Favreau and Filoni are Marvel talent. Like Michael Waldron did Loki. Now they're bringing him in uh, to like write the Kevin Feige movie. Who's pr- like who's Kevin Feige and he's producing a Star Wars movie. Taika Waititi like is the Thor guy. I mean he's much more than that, but he's yes. the Thor guy and he's doing a Star Wars movie. And it feels like Kathleen Kennedy is just taking direction from Kevin Feige, which on the one hand is probably good for them from a business sense. But I'm just like, oh, I really hope that Disney just doesn't become this one kind of blob of Marvel-esque storytelling. For Star Wars. Because Star Wars is is different. I I always thought... And what I found encouraging is one of the shows, and so they did a big, was it Vogue? There was a big, there was a big, uh, uh, drop. Oh, of, Vanity Fair. Oh, Vanity Fair. That's it. Vanity Fair drop. And not as high fashion, uh, of so much stuff. So it starts with V. So much of like, uh, previews of Star Wars stuff and all of that. And what I found fascinating is that one of the shows that they're developing, The Acolyte, I think is the name of it, is, uh, set in, in a hundred years before the Skywalker movies. And yes. that, and I, I was encouraged by that because although it does not allow the level of of uh, everybody happening all at once that you get in a in a mar- set of Marvel movies, the beauty of Star Wars is that it's set over this enormous time frame because it's all in this fictional universe, this fictional galaxy far, far away. And so telling you should have the freedom to tell a story set a hundred years before in this richer era or go a thousand years before or go after or go right in between the, the sets of movies. There's a lot of freedom there that you don't see as much in Marvel. Marvel has done some period pieces, but really Marvel is tied to our present day in a way that yes. Star Wars isn't. And so I would hate it for them to lose for them to lose that and say, no, all of our movies are going to be set in this one period and they're going to interrelate and then they're going to be TV shows in that period and we're going to get everything is going to be as samey as possible because I think, you know, that's that you're playing against some of the strengths of Star Wars when you do that, I think. Yes, exactly. Easy for me to say. As I already said, I'm a Star Trek fan, but I, I also was a kid in the 70s and 80s. And so we all like Star Wars was just it was a thing that happened to all of us. Um, you you couldn't not be a Star Wars fan if you were a kid in in the early 80s. Not possible. Um, OK, let's take a break and tell you about our sponsor for this episode. It's Pocket Casts again. Um, Pocket Cast is a great app for podcasts. Now, you're listening to this podcast in an app, probably, maybe just playing it in your web browser on the Relay FM website. I don't know. Um, Pocket Cast wants you to think about this. How good is the app you're currently using to listen to this podcast? Are you satisfied with it? Does it do things that annoy you? Does it mix music and podcasts into one confusing experience, maybe? Does it have the, all the features you need or want? Is it thoughtfully made by people who listen to podcasts every day? Maybe you should try something new. Pocket Cast is an app that is built by podcast listeners for podcast listeners. No matter how you listen to podcasts, Pocket Cast has you covered, and it seamlessly syncs your listening progress across all sorts of devices, iOS and Android. They have a web player as well. Everything is synced. It supports Amazon Alexa. It supports Sonos smart speakers. It supports CarPlay and Android Auto and Android Automotive. AirPlay, Chromecast. Uh, It's got a great discovery section where they curate new podcasts if you're looking for something else to listen to and you're not like me who has 80 more podcasts than i have time to listen to um apple watch support including offline playback you can load up podcasts on your apple watch and go for a run 
um, without your phone and still play it back. Uh, it's got complete listing history and stats for you. So you can see what you listen to and how, how many podcasts you're listening to in a given month or year. Um, and of course, cleverly, it rewinds your podcast. If you haven't listened in a little while, just a tad. So, you know, the context of what you've been listening to. So to remind you of where you were when you, uh, last left off, it's completely free. That's the other thing. If you want to try it, if it's not the app you're using now, uh, give it a try for free. However, they do have Pocket Cast Plus, which is a premium tier. And as a listener to Downstream, you will be able to get it for six months for free. Just go to pocketcast.com slash downstream. You'll download podcasts. You can redeem the six-month free trial for all the premium features in Pocket Cast Plus. If you're already using Pocket Cast, you can also take advantage of this to get six months free of Pocket Cast Plus. So you can try it too. Go to pocketcast.com slash downstream to find out more. Thank you to Pocket Cast for their support of downstream and all of relay fm thank you thank you all right let's do some letters i got a lot of letters here we're not going to get yes. to all of them because we get so many letters and thank you for sending them um we're going to have to do it like a one of us is going to go on vacation at some point and we're going to just do a bonus edition that yeah. is to, to fill in the gap of the vacation that's just all letters but we'll get through yes. some letters here uh two letters about churn and return that i thought you might like uh first from leaven do you think offering yearly subscriptions reduces churn or does it just reduce the total revenue coming from people who would keep paying a monthly fee anyway it's interesting to see disney plus offering a yearly subscription while netflix doesn't and i'm wondering if adding the option would be in the netflix strategy book uh now the subscriber numbers are falling love to your mother's leaving and then from david it's super easy to cancel and renew streaming service subscriptions this is great for users to manage costs by subscribing to what they're watching only when they're watching the content game plan for services exemplified by disney plus is to always have a must watch season running are there any signs the streaming services will make it harder for users to cancel or renew for example going the new york times route and forcing you to chat with customer help to justify your personal life decisions <laughs> before you cancel threaten to delete your viewing history and wish list after only three months without renewal running multi-month or annual subscription pricing i keep sticking with hulu because of the annual pricing i look forward to any insights you have love to your mothers and your fathers david so levin and david both have questions about strategy to reduce churn or is it worth it annual versus monthly what do you think so the simple answer is that yes annual um uh subscriptions reduce churn just by the context of what they are you there's 12 months where you're not going to lose a customer yeah. um annual subscriptions do not necessarily create better inherent value and um annual subscriptions do not necessarily mean that someone is engaging with that app every single week or every single month um i know a lot of friends who buy the annual services because it ends up being it's always end up ends up being like 10 bucks or 15 bucks cheaper at minimum um and so they do it and then they don't use the service for yeah. like 10 months that's, um, kind that's, of like the, that's gym. the trick. That's the trick, yeah, right? You're, you're saving. You're saving money if you're going to use it. But if you were going to cancel it and then renew it, then uh, and turn a return and all of that, then you probably didn't save money. That's that's the the calculation is how much money do I save? Am I really going to commit to this for a year? And 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 it, it's fascinating, right? Like it's that's a calculation we all can make. I like David's suggestion. I don't like it, but I appreciate it. That what if they just make it really hard to uh, cancel and renew? But I, I don't think that's going to be the case because they really do want you to come back. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing it in certain areas. Um, Fubo TV, which is much different, cause it's an um, VMPVD. They were there was a rumor that they were going to do annual lock-ins. Um, and then make it pretty difficult to kind of unsubscribe uh, just because of what they're doing. I mean, they're paying for a lot of rights. So like yeah. in terms of like to, to carry certain networks. So like that, you know, at that point, you kind of get back to cable. And to Jason's point, like what they don't want to do is become cable. Like what they don't want to do, to your point, David, is have you go and call like uh, your your cable provider and then like think about what you've been doing with your life for the last 30 years. Like Like they don't want you to have to go through that experience. But at the same time, the reason Netflix could do really cheap um, 
uh, subscription prices and then have like the monthly like leave whenever you want to leave is because at the time Netflix had no competition. So everyone kind of followed suit again. Like you've heard, you've heard me say this on the, on the show before. I'll say it over and over again. Like Netflix is still this kind of North Star uh, for a lot of these services. So they all went uh, monthly because Netflix was monthly. And, but now we're hitting a point where like we look at Disney, like a really interesting metric for Disney is going to be this November because it's when a lot of the three year subscription yes, fees. The introductory, run out. we had a letter about that that I thought that was such a great point. It's like we're coming up on yeah. that three year special magical Disney deal that they use to get a lot of people in the door right at the start. Now we're going to have to see how they do in terms of, I mean, they haven't taken in any new revenue for three years, right? But they also have to get those people to convert. And I think, and and two, one, my prediction is that Disney Plus will not see a massive churn like at yeah. all. The other thing Disney does, and this is to David's point that I think they will continue to do, they just re, they just did this actually a couple of months ago for Disney Plus, is they're very, very good at doing the like, we will sacri- sacrifice the average revenue per user, the ARPU for a little bit if it means we can keep our subscribers. So they'll do often the like, get Hulu for $2 for the next year. Like, like you can have this, get Disney plus for like $6 or like $5 for, you know, the next six months. Like they're very good at knowing, like if your thing's going to run out and they want to keep you, they're going to offer a cheaper version because they're hoping that over the course of time, you will then just kind of continue paying and then they can keep, they can bump you up to the higher tier and make their, the revenue that they want off of you. But unlike Netflix, which doesn't necessarily do that, like Netflix does not offer discounts. Like it's very much like, nope, you're going to come in and you're going to pay what we're going to pay because we're paying 20 billion on content and other things. Like we've got a lot going on. Disney and a lot of the other ones are much more like, well, no, we're still trying to grow. So if we can get to 200, you know, million subscribers, uh, 230 million subscribers, and we do that by taking a short term hit on the ARPU as we really try to get to a point where we're making enough content quarter after quarter after quarter that people are going to continue paying and the value, the inherent value matches the lock in annual pricing or whatever it might be. Then Disney gets to a point where profitability becomes like a really interesting and great opportunity for them because there's kind of this like understanding between its customers. But I do think you will see going forward a lot more companies. I mean, Paramount did this. Paramount basically offered Paramount Plus for a dollar if you signed up for Showtime. Yep. Like it was like get Showtime for 12 bucks and then Paramount Plus is a dollar. The whole thing's 13. And you're going to see a lot more of that. And you'll see a lot more of them saying like, oh, we're going to do a summer special. We're going to do a Christmas special. Like we're going to do a special and you get this annual lock in for like five bucks. And they're going to take that short term hit because they're convinced those customers at the end of that year are going to sign up for for the upgrade or whatever it might be. And however long the timeline is. Yeah, I think it I think it makes sense. I, I do think um, I get why they don't like churn, but um, if you can make an offer. And you can get people to take it to lock in for a year. There's value in that, even if you bypass some of the revenue. And what you're really hoping is that people begin to see it as a as a constant, right? Like, well, I can't envision life without name of service, because now that I've gotten used to it, instead of being driven by just watching the hits, now I just know that it's always there for me. And that psychologically, it's like, oh, you just converted me. Whereas other other people won't feel that way about your service. But if you can find those people, and it's a good deal if you feel that way about a service that you really do always want it, having the annual option is great because you can just save some money. Uh, but it doesn't mean you're locked in. And that, that's just you gave you gave that money up. It's a fascinating dynamic. Um, but they can do that because they're not the cable company. And I think they, they will never be the cable company. It's funny you made, mentioned Fubo. Uh, they are my t- live TV provider. Um, and I have signed. I think I pay them quarterly and I get a discount because it's quarterly. I did sign up. They don't have the Turner channel. So I did sign up for Sling for a month for the NBA playoffs. And that's fascinating because, again, it was only for a month. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty of it is that when you have the ability to churn like that, I, I pay for sling two times a year for a month for the baseball playoffs and the NBA playoffs. And if the Warriors are in it, I, otherwise I kind of don't care. But um, but for baseball, I'll pay for it anyway. And I was like, well, OK, th- that's an interesting dynamic, right? Where I wouldn't I wouldn't sign up for cable and then cancel it for one month at a time. But I can do that for Sling because they've got the channels I want or for YouTube TV or wherever. Whoever has the cheapest deal to get the channel that I need to see. Um, yes. It, it's just I love I love it. I do think it, it gives consumers more power. And I think of it that any organ to David's point, any um 
company that tried to make it really difficult uh, would and user hostile, I think is kind of swimming against the tide. I think that that they want to induce you uh, with deals and not make it not punish you for trying to get out of it. Also, a lot of um, countries and here in the U.S. states are making it more difficult for that kind of process. I believe there's a, there's a law on the books now that. Uh, or, or being debated now in California, maybe that says if you allow somebody to sign up uh, in an app or on a website, you have to allow them to uh, cancel in the exact same place. And there's already some yeah. laws to that effect. Like it, it's uh, the, if you try to pull that stuff on a consumer, I think you're just going to make them angry. And, and also you're going to hear from somebody's lawyer. <laughs> Um, okay, let's move on to this next letter, which is from Billy. Now, Billy, uh, first, I'm going to quote a letter from Billy that I received more recently, which was, boo, you teased my email in the May 4th episode and then bumped me from the May 17th episode. Well, Billy, good news. We have three episodes in May. And so you made it on here, the last episode of May, three, three special episodes this month. Um, here it is. I was curious if I could get your professional opinion on the dispute between Altitude Sports and Comcast Dish Network. Now, I'm going to just pause here to say this is in Denver, but I think that there are there are broader issues that yep. that we can take away from this. But but the story is amazing. So TLDR: Stan Cranky, uh, who also owns Arsenal uh, and the Rams, uh, and I'm an Arsenal supporter, so. I mean, yay billionaire? No, not really. Uh, He owns the Denver Nuggets and the Colorado Avalanche, the stadium they play in, uh, the TV channel they play on, Altitude Sports, the radio stations that carry their broadcasts, and briefly started a ticket-selling company. (laughs) Basically, he tried to vertically integrate everything and keep all related profits to himself, knowing fans are stuck with whatever he gives them and there is no competition to his monopoly over these franchises. But his TV carriage requirements with Comcast, DirecTV, and Dish Network all expired within a few days in August 2019. DirecTV reached an agreement in late October 2019. Almost three years later, Altitude is still unavailable on Comcast and Dish. Over that time, the Avalanche and Nuggets have been among the very best regular season teams, competing for top playoff season each year. Why would Cranky Sports and Entertainment allow all major carriage agreements to expire simultaneously? Why haven't they launched a standalone streaming service in the three years since then? And wouldn't it be better for him to take a lower than hoped per subscriber fee from Comcast than to make zero dollars per month for three years? Is he just willing to use tens of millions of dollars, lose tens of millions of dollars in the short term in the hopes of making hundreds of millions over the long run so the question here from billy is basically why do sports and media moguls play chicken with uh rebroadcast deals from cable and satellite uh when it would seem to be in their better interest to have more people watching um and I'm curious what you have to say. Uh, as you can see from our show document, I my, I have a very s- a simple answer for Billy, which is money, 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 money. It is all about money. I know it doesn't seem like it is, but like the reason all those deals expire at the same time is because of the leverage of the fact that then nobody's got a deal. And the reason DirecTV made a deal is that DirecTV sees value in paying, probably overpaying for that channel in order to be the only TV provider in the Denver market who has those sports because it's going to drive subs in the Denver market. Uh, And I think that that's the game that's being played here. Um, What do you think, Julia? First of all, I didn't know about this. And this is like, I'm literally like Googling because I'm I'm like fascinated by this. This is incredible. It's quite a power. I mean, we've seen similar things like in LA. There was that period of time where the Dodgers were not, I think this is not true anymore, but the Dodgers were not available on the biggest cable company in LA. Yes. It's yes. Like, what? <laughs> it was like they they said no, and and the Dodgers are like, fine, uh, get Directv then, I guess, or whatever, you know. And th- so in Denver, if you're a fan of the Nuggets and the Avalanche, um, you can't see them unless you have Directv, basically. Yeah. So I'm gonna echo Jason and say it, it's money, probably money, a lot money, of money. Money, money. Also, the fact that I imagine as a billionaire who owns many things, he just doesn't. I need this money. I mm-hmm. he's kind of, I, mean, I imagine there's a bit of an ego thing in there. I sure. also I also imagine I mean for the Avalanche I'm not sure but I imagine with the Nuggets carrying different Nuggets games when league pass it, I, it might be a complication with the NBA like if he was going to start a streaming service that only allowed Nuggets games and market there like I don't I don't know if there's any um issues rights issues with that happening as the NBA gets really into streaming. It is but- curious, right? You'd think that that there would be at least optionally he could have explored the idea of going direct to consumer with this, but you're right. I wonder if there are some um 
real technical restrictions that he would have to go to in order to do that because in market out of market because i think he only technically owns the in market -market, rights to his team and yeah yeah but Billy, you're 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 100 right. Like it does make more sense to figure out a way to just take, especially if you're a billionaire, to take the lower um uh deal or the lesser deal, I should say, from the big giants and let them carry the games. At the same time, it, you know, back from my reporting days when I used to report on carriage disputes, which is what this is. Uh, the the like some of the stuff you would just hear from executives on both sides like it's so funny because it's at the i mean it is money at the end of the day but there's also this like inherent belief that from each side that they are completely in the right and the other person is completely in the wrong like it is extremely binary and it's this moment of like well you need us and they're like well no you need us you know like the distributors need the teams but the teams need the distributor and so when you hear these fights happen it's funny because it's very like um high school like in, in mm. when, I, when i was reporting on it, i won't get into details but it was just very much like you're both losing money on this because it's well, like a huge season like the nuggets gets you know the, the nba fin- uh, finals are happening or whatever's going and on the, and the fans right it, it's also pandering to the fans right it was like look it's not us it's it's them no yes. no it's not us it's them and the fans yeah. are like please can we just can i just see my my team and and but everybody this is the future until the leagues figure out how to either like go dtc directly or like I, like I, this is what it is i do really believe that the reason direct tv and i don't know i haven't researched it but just reading billy's letter um you know direct tv reached that deal um for it's a probably a combination of factors one is like i said if you're the only tv provider in the market that has those sporting events you're going to you're going to drive subs. This is why DirecTV lost money on NFL Sunday Ticket for years and years and years and that's probably ending next year. Um it was because it was an exclusive and so if you wanted that product, you had to put a dish on your roof. That was it. And so in Denver, you have to put a dish on your roof if you want to get the Nuggets and the Avalanche locally. And so that's good for DirecTV and 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 so they're probably paying more than they otherwise would knowing that I actually kind of wonder if there's even a clause in their contract that says that they're pay they pay more if they're the exclusive um and and if Comcast and Dish made deals then they would pay less. I I don't know, but I do wonder if I would try to negotiate that if I were them. Um and for Cranky's standpoint, I I don't know. I think I think he's playing hardball. Maybe he is viewing a future where altitude ends up going direct to consumer and he's mm-hmm. willing to um have like there's a f- amount of money below which he's not willing to go because at that point he might as well just wait it out and and to your point julia he is a billionaire so on one level um he can wait it out and say no i i'm thinking about the next five years and so if there's two or three years where we're not on tv except direct tv so be it because i'm thinking yeah. about the big picture here because in the end he's a billionaire and he's got a plan and the plan is to make more money even if in the short term it might not we should never try to find the logic in billionaires. I mean, I, like They're I've been trying creatures. to do it watching Elon buy. Like I just, this just doesn't make sense. There's, yeah, I yeah. don't know. They're strange creatures. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is from Jay. <laughs> uh, I love the podcast. Nerdy and fascinating. A great report between Jason and Julia. Thank you. Aww, My thank wife you. and I are avid international TV show viewers, mm. mostly Spain, France, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Poland, and Germany. One of the most frustrating things is we find a show we love, go online to see if there's a season two, and if we find there is a season two and three, in some cases, four, five, and six, yet these are not available nor ever become so on the streamer that showed season one. Prime Video seems to be the worst about this. My assumption is there may be three reasons for this. Not enough eyeballs for the streamers, execs, and bean counters, unreasonable licensing costs or requirements on the part of the content owner, or wonky or tenuous partnerships. For example, PBS Masterpiece brings Astrid and Nina to Amazon via PBS Masterpiece subscription. Is PBS to blame or Amazon or the content owner? Do you have any insight into this phenomenon? It seems like a disincentive for people to stay with the streamer. Thank you, Jay. Now, I have a I have a thought here, and and Jay, I don't know about your particular, you know, a you know Swedish crime drama or whatever you're watching, but um, my particular uh, guess is that it's um, in part it's a a teaser kind of structure, where basically um, they're saying to themselves, "We'll give we'll sell season one to a broad." streamer in order to get people hooked like you jay 
and then they'll have to subscribe to a different service to get the rest of them. So the, my question is, is season two, three, four, five, and six available on Acorn, maybe, or BritBox? Because that happens a lot. I've noticed that, where they'll they'll take season one and put it somewhere popular. <laughs> um, but if you want to get, like, one of my favorite shows of all time is Detectorists, which is a British TV show. And I don't know if this is still the case, but for the longest time, you could get the first two seasons on Amazon, I want to say. But season three was an Acorn exclusive. And it was real frustrating because it was like, what do you mean the new season's not on the place where I watch this show? But that was part of the deal is that they they made their money by getting that show licensed more broadly to Amazon. But one of the things they're trying to do is drive people to season three on on Acorn. Um, that, that's my that's my take on it is it sounds like like this is the you know first first season's free <laughs> but after this you need to find our niche streaming service to see more yeah so a hundred percent right um it, it works for both parties in this situation so amazon or um, netflix or whomever get these first season rights sometimes you get the second season rights but then for the most part they drive customers to the other niche streaming service because it's like, hey, if you're interested in it, we hope you get you sign up. Um, the reason they do that, and this is a question I get from like every executive uh, who I talk to is, do you think Squid Game could have worked on and on without Netflix? And the answer is no. Like the, it worked because there's 222 million yeah. subscribers who could watch it. And so these companies, I mean, what, you're, what we're talking about is the international version of the CW effect, right? Or the CW is like, we're going to put our first season on, on Netflix, and then we're going to see a huge bump in viewership on our second season on Linear. I mean, we're going to keep that deal going. And for companies like Netflix and Amazon, so the question for you might be like, well, then why does Netflix and Amazon pay for it? One, they get to gauge interest from subscribers right. in different types of content, in different types of international content. Two, um, it actually helps in international markets if they do have uh, international content because they have to meet quotas sometimes. Like there's actual issues that can come up if they don't have enough. So for Netflix and, uh, and Amazon, it's especially Amazon, who's got you know a, a, just a ton of money. It's really simple to say, cool, like we'll partner with you. Also, Netflix sells channels. So the idea of like, hey, you want to watch the show on Acorn TV, we also you can get Acorn TV through us. And Netflix and Amazon, excuse me, is going to take like five to 10 percent, 15 percent of that of that sign up fee. And so there's this like ecosystem within it. Um, again, like if we think about that bundling, like there's a version of this where it works. Where it's like we're going to take the first season, second season, we're going to tease it out. And then we want you to sign up for the service. Also, we have the service. Let us recommend it to you. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah that's a, a good point. It's the um, we're marketing our Amazon channels where you can get Acorn. Yes. <laughs> and, and then you pay us and we pay Acorn and you get the rest of the seasons and they can put it in their UI, right? They can say, yeah. oh, well, this other season is also available, but it's on Acorn and you need you. And if you're in the Prime Video app, it will actually try to induce you to buy via Amazon channels. So Amazon gets a cut of it. Uh, and then yeah. if you end up liking it, if you end up watching it and enough people like it, then Amazon knows to go look at, you know, right. Danish dramas. Exactly. They can be like, cool, there's an audience for it. We're going to go see if we can scoop one up. And it comes out of the niche uh, a yeah. little bit. And yeah, so I, I think that's what's going on, Jay, is um, it, and I've seen it with non-international things, too, where you'll get a season. Um, you know, we've definitely seen it where uh, a season will go to Netflix or something. And you're like, well, why season one on Netflix? And the answer is pretty obvious is because there are a lot of people on Netflix. And if they discover it there, maybe they will come back. I don't know if Netflix wants to play that game so much anymore, but it's definitely happened in the past where there's been a, a couple early seasons. We saw this. This phenomenon used to happen with broadcast TV, too, where yeah. they would sell multiple seasons of a broadcast show into Netflix. And the goal was to boost their ratings, right? You get to the end of season two and you're like, I want more. And it's like, it's on the CW or it's on CBS. It was the CW effect. Yeah, I mean, and then also sure. when in 2013, the good place, it did it with um, NBC sold the good place seasons to Netflix too, which was great. It, and the thought there was they were also boosting their ratings on NBC. Well, in, in, right, in 2013, um, there was a great conversation between Ted Sarandos and a bunch of TV executives about Mad Men. And after Mad Men won a bunch of Emmys, the for Netflix, which had 
the rights to season one for streaming, it became like their most watched show like of that week. Like everyone was watching season one in Mad Men. And then AMC, yeah. I believe, I have to double check this, but AMC saw a, co- a correlation to people who after they watched that were then watching the next seasons of Mad Men. And so like Netflix, that was yep. that was the big selling point for Netflix and Amazon back in like 2013, 2014, was that when they were still trying to figure out original content, it was, hey, if you give us this, it's only going to help you because people are still paying for TV and there's broadcasts and they're going to come back to you. Like Hence the CW, uh, the Netflix bump, which they called it and the CW, like that was what they referred to it. Um, but also like your audience, your young audience is moving online. They want to come to us and we want to, we will obviously want them to engage with us and spend their money and so yeah like that's kind of how it started and now as international content becomes much more engaged with and consumed amongst um domestic audiences and as these companies are trying to look at what international content to potentially buy for a global audience having a first or second season and seeing which markets really play well which don't and then being able to say like oh we also have a partnership with this like niche streaming services which is great for revenue etc 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 it just helps them figure out the financial side of things as they grow. Right. Well, good letter. Uh, Marketing is the answer to a lot of this, right? Which is like there's marketing, you know, the rules of marketing in the streaming era are, are a little different and um, they're still experimenting and there's, and some of it can be confusing to, uh, to the customers who are trying to, to find the product because the rules are not as clear as they used to be, maybe. Um, we're, we have to go. Uh, but before we go, I've got a little breaking news, which is just uh, since we were talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, Disney Plus announced as we were recording that Obi-Wan Kenobi was their most watched original premiere globally to date based on hours streamed in an opening weekend. I love all the details there. I love all the footnotes about it. But what they want you to... I think that's really still really interesting because it's like Mandalorian. It's all the Marvel shows. And it's like, no, Obi-Wan Kenobi was, was their biggest one yet. I mean, obviously, they might tailor all of their little footnotes there to be the most self-serving possible. But I still think it's an interesting data point that they are able to say... Obi-Wan was their most watched premiere. That's uh kind of cool. Now they did do it they did do two episode premiere, so that's two two hours per viewer uh instead of one. They also said it increased they saw like a decent increase in Star yeah. Wars title consumption afterwards. Yeah. I think also right, the prequels, what, what, the whole thing. And, yeah. and what that says to me, what's really interesting about that, like to your exact point, Jason, about how it was bigger than, you know, like Mando season two or all the new Marvel shows that have come out, is that well, Disney's subscribers uh, uh, growth has like continued like it's uh, it hasn't been like they didn't get like 45 million subscribers last week. And that now all of a sudden there's this new thing like this means that of the subscribers who are kind of coming in and watching this, like we can kind of take that little uh, datecdote as uh, my favorite um, writer on Twitter, <laughs> Entertainment Strategy, I says, you take that datecdote and you can kind of say, okay, how does this compare then to Moon Knight or whatever it is in terms of where the viewership is and where the interest is on Disney Plus? Because if we assume that it's this roughly the same number of subscribers, maybe within a one or two million dif- uh, to three million subscriber difference, that means that Moon Knight did not hit that potential to be the come the most watched thing or whatever. Neither did Loki when there was, you know, 30, uh, 20 million less subscribers. But with Obi-Wan, this becomes a whole thing. And um, I know on our end, we saw that Obi-Wan uh, demand was like definitely above Mandalorian. It was above Boba Fett. Like it was it was yeah. high so when it was pre-release. But I think like we can take that and be like, cool. If we knew how many people that was, we could then look at all the other Marvel <laughs> things and, and have a really fun a moment to, to dive into some nerdy data. But we, we do oh, we not. Don't. So we just have we have that data to kind but of. It's interesting to, to think about, if nothing else. Yeah. Interesting to think about. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have a, a question for us, we have a lot of letters. But uh, again, summer's coming. I'm sure we're going to probably do a double bank to a vacation episode and read all letters all the time. Uh, keep threatening it. It'll happen eventually. Uh, send us an email downstream at relay.fm. You can also tweet at us, of course, downstream pod. Love to your mothers. Find Julia at loudmouth. Julia on Twitter. Parrotanalytics.com. Occasionally on puck.news. And you can find me at jsnell on Twitter. Sixcolors.com. Lots of podcasts here at Relay FM. That's the end of this episode of downstream until the next fortnight julia goodbye jason my pleasure as always